Good morning. Pleased to have the opportunity to bring God's Word again this morning. And uh, I took a little poll this week. Um, I asked some people, what is their favorite song? There's a reason for that. Um, and let me give you the results. I asked, I asked Pastor Corey what was his favorite song. He said, uh, Live Like You Were Dying by Tim McGraw. That's a good. Uh, Olivia Jackson said, Never Gonna Not Dance Again by Pink. And uh, Charity Starchenko, this was amazing. Charity said, uh, Swim Until You Can't See Land by Frightened Rabbit. Raise your hand if you have ever heard of Frightened Rabbit. I'd <laughs> that got my vote for the most interesting one. I asked our, our eldest elder, Claire Hine, if, uh, if I could have his favorite song, and he said, uh, The Single Ladies by Beyonce. No, he did not say it. No, he said, <laughs> he said, he said A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Great, great choice. Uh, while I was sitting here, I asked uh, one of our younger friends, Brower Evenhouse, I asked him uh, what is his favorite song, and he said, From Austin by Zach Bryan. That's a good one. Good choice. And... Uh, I, uh, my own, it would be tough to, Better Think Twice by Poco, that's a good song. Refried Dreams, uh, maybe Tim McGraw, I, I don't know, so many to choose from. Why am I, at, why am I starting here? Uh, you may not know this, but the passage that was just read is actually uh, thought by many theologians to be a song, an early hymn of the Christian church. Uh, it really is an amazing, amazing passage. Um, it's certainly one of the most powerful, what we call Christological passages in the whole Bible that is telling us specifically and clearly who is Jesus Christ. Now, we're not going to sing it this morning, although I'm sure somebody could set this to music, somebody gifted in the church, that would be interesting. But uh, we are going to talk about this passage this morning, and I hope that by the end it will be one of your favorite songs as well. And, uh, and it is an Advent passage. Uh, in the sense that it, it tells us about this coming Lord, this Lord who it is that we celebrate during Advent. At Christmas, Jesus is most often represented as a baby, right? That's because we're celebrating his birth. But we need to be careful with that baby because he is every bit as much the king of the universe in his birth as he is now, he's seated at the right hand of God and, uh, and ruling his creation and ruling heaven. So it's more than appropriate, I think, at this season of Advent that we look not only at the narratives of his birth, but also at the reality of who this baby in the manger actually is. And so in this passage, this song, if you will, we really see this reality. And in this passage, Paul makes three really profound and sweeping points. And these, uh, each of these three showed Jesus' relation to, uh, to deity, to creation, and to the church. So we're going to look at these together. And the first one that we're going to look at is Jesus is God incarnate. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is Paul clearly says that Jesus is the visible image, the image of the invisible God. Now, if I were to take out my phone and take a picture of the good-looking Jackson children here. Nice. And then, and then I were to show you that picture, you would say, oh, yeah, I, I recognize, those, recognize those handsome boys. That would be an image, in a sense. It would be uh, a picture of someone, a representation. So when Paul tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, is that what he's telling us, that, 
that Jesus is sort of a picture. Well, a digital picture is, an, is really an inadequate illustration, I think, because it only shows a physical representation. You'd be able to tell me who these guys are by looking at the picture, but you wouldn't really be able to tell me anything about them. And the word that Paul uses here, icon, is used in the same way that we would talk about the reflection in a mirror, that kind of an image. See, when you look in a mirror, you're not really looking at yourself, you're looking at a reflection, but it is yourself in a sense, right? When you go away, so does the image. It, if you're not there, the image is not there. So maybe, maybe this is a little better of an illustration than a, than a picture, but even that is not really an adequate illustration because it's not really you, it's just a reflection. This word can also be translated manifestation. It tells us that Christ is the image of God in the same sense that the nature and the being of God are perfectly represented in him. The writer, in the, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews tells us much the same thing in the first chapter <clears throat> when he speaks of Jesus as the exact representation of God's being. And then Paul magnifies this whole idea in verse 19 when he tells us that all of God's fullness dwells in Christ. He's more than merely a picture. He's every bit of God wrapped up in human flesh. Every bit of God wrapped up in human flesh. That's a scandal, really. It was that the almighty, transcendent God entered space and time in the form of a little child. And it was a scandal to the Jews who could not conceive of God condescending to become a mere man, a human. And so Jesus still remains a stumbling block to the Jews in that regard because they were looking for the Messiah to be royalty, not humility. <clears throat> it was also a scandal to the Colossians. They were influenced by a Greek philosophy uh, that believed that spiritual things were good and earthly physical things were evil. That's called the Gnostic heresy. That matter, physical things, were so bad that God couldn't even create it, much less stoop to in inhabit it. And that's really not so different, if you think about it, from what a lot of Eastern religious religions tell us today. They tell us we should seek kind of a higher spiritual state, something apart from the physical reality of this world, the corruption of this world. And even if you're not into Eastern religions, uh, we see this thought, this divorce between the secular and the spiritual uh, in a lot of different ways. The separation between the spiritual and the material also helps us to get to the point where we believe that people can come to opposing views about truth and both can be right. Because it, it's simply spiritual. It doesn't really matter in terms of space and time and reality. There's no real connection between morality and an objective spiritual reality. And you know what? As much as we might disagree with that view, it really has influenced the church in some ways. It's subtle. The spirit is good. The material is not so good. It's bad, maybe. So we should come together as kind of a little spiritual enclave and separate ourselves from the evil of this world and make the church kind of a militarily defensible position. And what does that do? It causes us uh, to do some things that are not helpful. We make up lots of legalistic rules about what we should and shouldn't do. We draw lines between the spiritual and the secular. We draw up sometimes into kind of a holy huddle. 
and we lose contact with non-Christians, people who don't believe what we believe in our neighborhood, in our school, uh, in our workplace. Because when we're involved with church stuff, that's what's good, right? No, no. (laughs) The purpose of a huddle is to draw up a play, and the purpose of drawing up a play is to play the game. Jesus modeled taking on our messy, dirty human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. He actually identified with our world as he took on flesh in the person of Jesus. He identified with humanity, and he got involved with our world on an intimate level. He didn't just sort of move into the neighborhood, but keep the prerogatives of the king of the, as a king of the universe like kind of like living in a mansion, you know, in a, in a trailer park. No, he moved into our neighborhood but gave up his prerogatives. He actually identified with us. He experienced every human emotion that you and I experience. He was betrayed. He was rejected. He was frustrated. He got tired. He was tempted. The author of Hebrews tells us he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he became one of us. And the incarnation is a model of how you and I are called to approach this world that we live in. Everything that we do, everything that you're involved in, is Jesus's place. Where you work, where you go to school, where you live, everyone you come in contact with, it all belongs to Jesus. And we dare not regard those things as somehow dirty or unspiritual. All of it, all of it belongs to Jesus. And we've been called to live in the middle of and identify with all of that. The incarnation really is a model for us. We need to get in the game. There's nothing unspiritual about what you do at your job or in your school or in your neighborhood. The incarnation of Jesus was a radical entering into our world. And I challenge you this morning to think about what that would mean to you as you enter into this world that God has placed you in, in whatever situation in life. To give up some of our rights and our prerogatives, to really share in the lives of the people who God has put in our path. In 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, Paul writes, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God. I don't know what the most important job you have ever had is but I can tell you the one you have now is really important you're an ambassador a lot of people work really hard to get appointed to be an ambassador and that's what you and I are we are ambassadors for Jesus well the next thing I'd like us to consider is that uh, Jesus is the creator of the universe and Paul makes that very clear he began this passage with kind of an emphatic statement of the deity of Christ, and if Jesus is God, then we need to know how he relates to his creation. So he begins by telling us that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. Now, what does this mean, the firstborn over all creation? If you've ever had a Jehovah's Witness come to your house, 
they like to point to this passage and say, well, see, Jesus isn't really God. He was, he was born. He didn't actually exist before time. Jesus, Jesus isn't really God at all. How could he be God? And what we need to understand about this passage is that the term that Paul uses here, firstborn, it's not a statement of chronology, but a statement of supremacy. Jesus was not created. He was, he is the creator. In Psalm 89, 27, the same words used by God when he says of David, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of kings of the earth. This word is used to communicate either priority in time or supremacy in rank. And in the case of Jesus, both are true. He's before all time, and he's also over it in rank and dignity. He's said to be firstborn of all creation because he made it. And just to emphasize that point, look what, what Paul then tells us about how creation relates to Jesus. There are three prepositional phrases here. By him through him, and for him. The act of creation was actually by him. Remember in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image. Jesus is an, an agent, the agent of creation. It's by him. Creation's also through him in the sense that he's the mediating agent through which creation came into being. John 1, 3 says, through him all things were made. Nothing was made that has been made, Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Nothing in this world exists that isn't somehow related to Jesus Christ. And creation is for him in the sense that he's the end for which all things exist and the goal to, towards which all things moved. Have you ever thought of that, that Jesus is really the center of human history? When Adam and Eve sinned, the only reason... Why God didn't destroy him was the redemption that God had planned through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is actually the only reason that there's human history at all. And notice, too, that Paul uses the phrase all things four times in, in these verses 16 through, and 17, both physical things and spiritual things. There really is another world that you and I can't see or hear. It's just as real as the things that we observe. And that's true whether you believe it or not. You know, there are voices surrounding us at this very moment that you can't see, you can't hear. They're called radio waves. <laughs> and, and that doesn't mean just because we can't apprehend them with the antenna that's built into our bodies, that doesn't mean they don't exist. There is a spiritual realm that exists beyond our apprehension. And that's true whether we believe it or not. If you were to put a ladder up against the side of this church and then climb up, climb up and then jump off, what would happen? You would hit the ground. Why? Because of gravity. Can you see gravity? <laughs> can, you, can you feel it? Hear it? How many of us even understand it? If I were to say I don't really believe in gravity, that, that really doesn't matter, does it? It's still a real force that has implications on my life, whether I believe it or not. And we hear this all the time today. People say, well, I don't really believe in God, as if that somehow settles the matter for them, right? But think about this. It's a lot more important what God believes about you than what you believe about God. Because no amount of believing in God is going to wish him into existence if he doesn't exist. And no amount of denying that God exists 
is going to wish him out of existence if he does. We're certainly going to reap the consequences. Believing in heaven and hell is, is a lot like believing in gravity. You, I mean, you're free to do that. You're free to believe or not, but you will reap the consequences. I was told a story of two men who were going to race across a frozen pond in the wintertime and uh, to see which one was fastest. And one of them was told that the ice was really dangerous, that in some spots it's only a half an inch thick and it probably won't support your weight. And the other was told that the ice is three feet thick all the way across the, the lake. You can drive a truck on here. How do you think that impacted the way that the two men raced across the ice? You can have all the faith in the world that the ice will hold you, but if it's only a half an inch thick, you're going to be in trouble. You also can believe that there's a problem, that it's only a half an inch thick, but if it's three feet thick, you're not going to have a problem. Faith is important, but the object of our faith is even more important. The reality that lies behind our faith is really what is key, is really what's important. And so Jesus not only created the world, but he also rules and governs it. In verse 17, we're told that he's before all things in rank and dignity, but he also holds all things together with his sustaining power. The only reason that you and I are here this morning is because of Jesus. In him, all things hold together. Have you ever tried to assemble something that's complicated, that has springs in it? A number of years ago, I was trying to fix an antique door lock at my daughter's uh, house in Richmond. And as many times as I would try to put that thing together, just as I was about to get it closed, the little springs would all jump out and find places to hide where you can't, find, you can't ever find them again. And uh, one of the most frustrating things ever, these little things would just leap out. Maybe you've had that kind of an experience before. Every time I remove my fingers from this thing, it, it would just explode. So what's Jesus' relationship to the universe? It's, it's really much the same as that. If Jesus was to remove his sustaining power from creation, even for an instant, then everything would fly out of control, just like those little springs in the door lock. Jesus did not create the universe and then just sort of leave it to himself. We call that deism, the idea that God would, would create a world and then back off and just have nothing more to do with it. He's actively involved and engaged in running the universe every day. Have you ever thought about what life would look like if Jesus was not sustaining the universe? It's really the love of God, common grace, that we receive from Jesus that keeps this world spinning and, and somehow in check to some degree. When we submit our lives to Jesus and his lordship, his sustaining power allows our lives to function in the way that we were created to live. Now, the last point is that Jesus is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. And we often emphasize the imminence of Christ, the idea that he, he is available to us, with us, incarnate. But we dare not forget that Jesus is also our ruler, our king, the head of the church. It's interesting to see how Jesus is characterized in different denominations. When you go to a Roman Catholic church, how do you see Jesus portrayed? Usually on a cross, a crucifix on a cross. In a Protestant church, 
usually one of two ways, either as a baby or as sort of a pale-skinned shepherd, you know. Um, when you go to an Eastern Orthodox church, how do you see Jesus portrayed? As a king, generally as a king. Jesus is our redeemer, he's our friend, but he's also our Lord and our king. He is the one that is the head of the church, and he guides the church, and he governs it. And Paul speaks of the church as a body. That's not insignificant. In fact, he says Jesus is the head of the body, and in case you missed what he's talking about, he tells us that he's talking about the church. And the body he's talking about is not Trinity Park Presbyterian. It's not Second Baptist. He's talking about the universal church, the body of all believers. So let's talk about that for just a moment. We're told in, in many, many passages that the church is the body of Christ, but what are the implications of that? For one thing, it means that the church is a living organism. Its members are joined to one another. And I think it's unfortunate today that we don't celebrate that fact enough. Actually, sometimes we act like we're kind of unhappy about it, that we're related to some of these other people who don't worship quite the way that we do. I think we'd do well to go back and, and read some of the, the passages that talk about what it means to be a body. We have no business cutting off or speaking ill of others in the body of Christ. I, I don't know where you celebrated Thanksgiving, but uh, we typically go up to Maryland and, and have Thanksgiving with my wife's family, and, and it's an interesting group. And, uh, you know, when I think about relative, you know, the re definition of a relative is people who, under any other circumstances, you wouldn't be friends with. Um, that's, we, when I think about some of our relatives, I think I'm, I'm not all that excited to be related to some of them. And, uh, and you know what? I don't have a choice. I am. And they're part of my family. And whether I approve of the things they're doing or the way they are, whether I'm proud to be related to those people or not, they're still my relatives. And when we think about the church, when we think about the body of Christ, there may be, like a Thanksgiving celebration, there may be some people you're not terribly excited about being related to, but we are. Another thing that this means, that the church is the body, is that we are the means by which God chooses to accomplish his work on earth. And we were meant to worship. And a few weeks ago, Corey talked about worship as an act of defiance against Satan. And I'm hoping he expands on that thought because I found it fascinating. But we're meant to do, we're meant to worship. We're also meant to do more than worship. We're meant to be involved. We're meant to serve. We're meant to use the gifts that God has given us. And I would ask this morning, if you're a member of the church, that is the larger church, this church, certainly, but if you're a member of the body of Christ, how are you using your gifts? So we've considered that, God, that Jesus is God incarnate. We've considered that he created the universe. We've considered that he's the head of his body, the church. And in verses 19 and 20, Paul makes one more emphatic summary statement. And it really is a powerful statement, really, of the whole gospel. He says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. I don't know about you, I tend to struggle with authority at times, but deep down, I think all of us want and need people to lead us. 
And Jesus is the king of the universe. He reigns over everything, supreme. He sustains everything by his power. And rather than lording that authority over his creation, he humbled himself. He became a man, a person. He made peace between us and God by shedding his blood on a cross. Jesus Christ, the almighty God in the flesh, has come to reconcile all things to himself. And if you've placed your faith in Christ, you've already been reconciled to God. God made our peace through his blood, through the blood of Jesus Christ. And someday we're going to come face to face with this king, the one who created everything and rules and sustains everything. So what do you do with this baby Jesus? C.S. Lewis has a famous quote. He said, a man who was merely a man and said the kinds of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. If Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, the visible expression of the invisible God, the ruler of all, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, the head of the church, the redeemer of mankind, our only hope of having a right relationship with God, what do you do with that? See, I think this is where the rubber meets the road. We have three options, really. First, if you believe that Jesus is your king, you must submit and give him your allegiance. And that means that every bit of us needs to be under his authority. Our time, our treasure, our talent. Affirming what this passage teaches about Jesus' identity has immense consequences. But they're not all about submitting. It's about privilege as well. We get the benefit of being children of the king. What would it be like to be a son or a daughter of the president of the United States? Would that be cool? Would you get some stuff? Would you get some? We are sons and daughters of the king of the universe. And that comes with great privilege and great blessing. And what if you don't affirm what this passage teaches about Jesus' identity? If you don't believe his, that he is your king, that's a fair position to take, I, not one I'd recommend, but he does let us choose. And in that case, I think you have to decide who you will actually bow your knee to because we all bow our knees to someone or to something. And you need to be clear-eyed about what that means and need to be clear-eyed about what that will get you because the stakes are incredibly high. We're told in the scripture that if we do not have the Son of God, we do not have eternal life. We still rest under the judgment of God. And that's either right or it's wrong. And then the third option, I think really is the toughest one, that's to affirm Jesus' identity as king and then say that you will neither bow your knee nor accept his gracious mercy and kindness. And I'd say that leaves you in pretty much the same place as option two, but in some ways it's worse. Because you're not claiming ignorance so much as you're saying that the king has no authority over you. 
And that, we call that rebellion or even treason, and we know what the, the penalty for that is. And that's why I titled this sermon, Be Careful with the Baby. If you've seen the old Robin Hood movies, they all are kind of the same. You know, Robin and his men all have, like, hoods on, and, you know, they come to some place where all the bad guys are, and <clears throat> they pretend to be peasants like everybody else, and then there's this one moment where all the hoods get thrown back, and you know who they are, and the arrows start flying, and they save the day, the whole deal. God entered space and time as a helpless baby in a manger. But you and I know who he really is. And the hood has been thrown back, and you know exactly who this person is. And if you don't know Jesus, if he's still just a little baby in a manger or a lifeless body on a cross, my prayer is that you would come to know him this Christmas season, <clears throat> that the Son of God would be born in your life just as he took on flesh and was born in a manger. He desires to invade your life, just as he invaded our world 2,000 years ago. He's the fullness of God wrapped up in human flesh. He's the one who created you and this whole universe. He's the one who sustains everything by his benevolent hand. He's the head of everyone who calls themselves by his name. So I'd ask you to consider this image today of Jesus, a true picture that maybe you haven't ever considered. And give your life to him, because he's the only one, the only king worth serving. And only in him will we truly find the life that we're searching for. And for those of us who know Jesus as king, we submit, we honor, we obey the king with everything that we have. And you and I must point to this baby lying in a manger and tell everyone that he is the cosmic ruler of the universe. Joy to the world. The Lord has come, let earth receive her king. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning that you have told us exactly who this Jesus is. Thank you for the way that he rules and sustains. We thank you for the grace and the mercy that he offers us. Father, we ask that we would have a clear picture of who he is and what that means for our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.